Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you all today as we wrap up our series on the book of Genesis. Uh, and as we dive into this story, I just want to know if I'm the only person who's had this experience. And so if you would be willing, I would actually love for a little participation here. You can be honest. But have you ever had one of those moments where you have been, let's say, you're about ready to go to bed at night, your head is hitting the pillow, you're about to fall asleep, and as you are falling asleep, some memory just, bam, comes straight into your mind, and it's one of those embarrassing moments of your life that you wish you could undo, but for whatever reason, it just flashes into your, your face and then hits you in the face, and all of a sudden, you can't sleep for the rest of the night, and you're up for the next like half hour, hour, just thinking about this thing you did when you were 14 years old that you just can't let go of. Anyone ever had that experience, or is it just me? Okay, one person's honest, two people are honest. Okay, I know some, all right, yeah, they, now hands are up. Yeah. What is that? That's awful. I hate those moments. I don't understand why they happen. I, I wish those moments, those embarrassing stories from my life kind of functioned more like my phone, where, where if there's a picture or a memory that, that I could just erase or cut or edit or snip that out so I don't have to face those moments. There are a lot of moments in our life that we wish we could edit, erase, or get rid of. Most of them, if we're honest, have something to do with our parents when we're a teenager in some way that they embarrassed us. And uh, parents just have this ability to embarrass us. I don't really know how they have this knack for it. Uh, but one of those stories for me is when I was about 13, 14 years old. I was in seventh grade, and I was with my mom and one of her friends, and we were walking into Target after school. Now, what you need to know about my mom's friend is that she called herself my parole officer, um, kind of as a joke, because I got in trouble a lot. And so it was a way she could tell her, my mom, that, hey, I'm going to help you out with this kid because he's a little bit of a heathen. Um, but secondly, she loved to call me my parole officer because every time I would introduce her to my friends, she would say, hey, I'm Paul's parole officer. And then I'd have to explain the whole thing about how I don't actually have a parole officer, but she would just embarrass me that way. Well, this particular day, we're going into Target, and as we're getting out of the car and walking into Target, I happen to see Hannah Clayton. You don't know Hannah Clayton, but when I was in seventh grade, I had a massive crush on Hannah Clayton. And so she's getting out of the car. She's going into Target with her mom. I'm going, getting out of the car and going into Target with my mom and my parole officer. And I make the mistake of waving hi to her, which immediately my mom and parole officer pick up on. There's something going on here. And so they ask me, hey, do you want to go over and say hi? With my mom and my parole officer? Absolutely not. Like, no way do I want to go say hi to the person I have a crush on with you two, which was the second mistake I made that day. Because parents have this sixth sense. It's like sharks smelling blood in the water. When they know their kid is embarrassed, they just have it. They're going to lean into that moment. And so picking up on my embarrassment, like, I know I don't want to go talk to Hannah Clayton with you guys. My parole officer asked, it's so weird to say that, my parole officer didn't actually have a parole officer. I need you to know that. But my parole officer asks and says, hey, are, are you embarrassed of us? <sighs> oh, young Paul, 14 years old, did not know in that moment to say, no, I'm not embarrassed. Because the moment you say you're embarrassed, it's like a dare. It's like a dare for them to step into. And so I say yes, and immediately, without hesitation, like a, a, I don't even know how they synchronize this, but my mom and my parole officer take hands, look at me, look at Hannah Clayton, and start skipping down the parking lot singing Elton John's 1994 classic, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? 
leaving me just mortified. Like, it is the only time in my life that I think I prayed, like, God, would you just take me? Like, I don't know where I'm going, but I just need to not be here in this moment. It was so, so embarrassing. And the truth is, we all have those moments. See, there are things that have happened to us or things that we have done ourselves that are so embarrassing. We wish we could edit, erase, or just delete that moment from our story. And most of them are lighthearted enough that after enough time and therapy, you can kind of laugh about it and share it with people, right? It's safe to share about now. But if we're honest, there are also moments that are less lighthearted. There are moments in our stories that are much darker, moments that we're embarrassed of, moments that, that where we have hurt someone else or we have wronged someone else, where we have hurt ourselves, that we wish we could have a do-over, that we wish we could go back and undo or erase or edit or just take those moments out of our stories. I mean, moments where we have done things that when we think back on, it is hard not to hate ourselves and be angry at ourselves and the, the things that we've done or the things that have happened to us. What's always fascinated me about Scripture, about our sacred book, is that there's so many stories like that that when you read them, you think, why in the world would they include this in the story of God? Like, why in the world would they keep these stories? They're so messy, they're so volatile, there's so much violence and, and terrible things, heinous things happening. Why would God, the authors of Scripture, leave those stories in the Bible? Like, those are the stories that you would just edit out. You would think if you were telling the story of your family, I'm sure that there are moments that you leave out because you don't want people to know about some of the things that have happened in your family. And yet what's fascinating me is the Bible is always, always brutally honest about some of the worst moments in the stories of the people of God. And the question is, why? Why does it leave these stories in there? And, and the story that we're looking at today, it's one of those stories. It's the story of Judah and Tamar. If you have any familiarity with the story of Judah and Tamar, you're probably like me, and you've maybe read it a few times, but you've just kind of breezed past it because you have no idea what to do with the story. There's some weird stuff that happens in this story. And even if you're familiar with it, you've probably never heard a sermon on it before. And depending on how today goes, this may be the only time, so we'll see, okay? But it's a fascinating story of, of just kind of the, the worst parts of humanity that's included in the Bible. And I think it's, it's kind of a, a testimony to Waterstone. It's not to me. I didn't pick this passage. Larry gave it to me. and was like, here you go. Good luck. But I think it's a testimony to Waterstone that these stories are not stories that, that we avoid or that we leave behind or that we try to edit ourselves. We think that if God included it in Scripture, then it's worth exploring, worth examining, worth, worth looking at. And, and I think we do that. Waterstone leans into the hard topic. So if this is your first time at Waterstone today, and you're like, why in the world are they preaching on this story? We want to lean into the hard topics, to the hard stories. Because the truth is, we believe that in the hard, messy, grimy stories of the Bible, we actually see God at work, and it can help us better understand our own stories. And so that's why we look at stories like Judah and Tamar, because we believe that, that God speaks even in the messiest, most embarrassing moments of our lives. And the story of Judah and Tamar is incredibly, incredibly messy. But it's also kind of odd, 
if I'm honest with you, because the story of Judah and Tamar is kind of an interruption in the flow of Genesis. Last week, Madison preached an incredible message on Joseph, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if you weren't here with us. But she preached the message on the life of Joseph. And what's fascinating is that the story of Judah and Tamar is an interruption in that story. So in Genesis 37, Judah, or I'm sorry, Joseph is taken by all of his brothers and sold into slavery. And then there's chapter 38, which is the story of Judah and Tamar. And then in chapter 39, the story of Joseph picks right back up where it left off with Joseph being taken into Egypt. And so the question is, why in the world is this story about Judah and Tamar an interruption in the story of Joseph? Why did the authors place it in this particular spot? What you have to know about Judah as we get going with the story is that there's a couple of things that are really important contextually to know about him. One is he's a son of Jacob and he's the brother of Joseph. When Joseph is sold into slavery, it's Judah's idea. All of the brothers see Joseph coming, and they want to kill him, and they want to murder him, and then they talk themselves out of that. Reuben, the oldest, says, no, we shouldn't kill our brother. But then it's Judah who comes up with a plan to sell his brother into slavery. The other thing you need to know about Judah is that even though he's the fourth son of Jacob, he's actually the functional firstborn in their story. You see, his oldest brother, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, he's kind of disqualified himself from that title of firstborn, from that responsibility, because, again, grimy, he slept with his father's wife. A little weird. Not his mom, but another wife of his father. And so he's disqualified from being the one to inherit Jacob's promise. And then the next two sons, Simeon and Levi, they're also kind of interesting because what happens, and again, kind of a trigger warning, but one of their sisters is raped, and then Levi and Simeon, they go John Wick on the person and the village that this person is from, and they kill every man, woman, and child in this village to get revenge for what happened to their sister. Again, messy, dysfunctional family. And so both, all three of these sons have disqualified themselves, and Judah is the de facto oldest. He's the firstborn, he's the heir, and the recipient of the promise of God that has been going from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And yet, we see him begin to go down a similar path as his brothers. And this is where the story of Judah and Tamar begins in chapter 38, uh, starting with verse 1. It says, at that time, that time being when they sold Joseph into slavery, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur, which I think is more of an interjection than a name, but whatever, that's his name. Feels a little weird. I kind of feel like the, this is a side. I kind of feel like the authors are like, I don't remember what his name was. So like, Ur, oh, we'll just go with Ur. And they just put it in. <laughs> she goes on and says, she conceived again and gave birth to a son named him Onan. And then she gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kezeb that she gave birth to him. And Judah got a wife for Ur. I'm gonna, every time I say it, I'm going to just be like, Ur. His firstborn and her name was Tamar. So this is setting up the characters of the story. But two things that we need to know about Judah from this story is that when it introduces us to Judah in this story is that it says he went down 
away from his brothers. And if you remember last week when Madison was talking about Joseph, when he is sold into slavery, it says that he went down to Egypt. And Madison did a great job explaining that any time in Genesis it says someone went down, it is that they are leaving God's presence. And so Judah in this moment is going down away from God's presence. But where Joseph was sold into slavery and sent away from God's presence, Judah is choosing to leave God's presence. He's running away from God. And secondly, what we find in this passage is that not only is Judah running away from God, he also does something that no patriarch in the Genesis story has done yet. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have all not done this thing, but what he does is he marries a Canaanite woman. And if you remember a few sermons ago where Larry was talking about Abraham trying to find a wife for Isaac, and he makes his servant promise him, promise him, that whatever wife he finds for his son, it will not be a Canaanite woman. Because part of the promise of God in this family promise was to make sure that these men married people who were within the bounds of God's commands. And so Judah is not only running away from God's presence, he is also running away from God's promise. He is fleeing from God. And the question is, why? Like, what would cause Judah, the, the firstborn, quote-unquote, the de facto firstborn who's heir to these promises of God, choose to run away from God? I think it's actually incredibly relatable. Because what you see in this story is that, that Judah and all his brothers, all of his brothers who aren't Joseph, they're carrying a deep, deep father wound. All of them have felt like they have not been loved by their father. And Joseph, who's been lifted up as the favorite of their father, Jacob, and showered with all of this praise and glory and wonder, they are all feeling like they are left out. And it causes this huge dysfunction in their family. It's the reason they sell him into slavery. It's the reason that their whole family is broken apart time and time again is because these brothers were not loved by Jacob the way that Joseph loved them. So he's carrying a, a father wound that's caused dysfunction in his life. But the second is I think there's a deep, deep sense of guilt. I mean, it is not a mistake that this story comes right after Joseph is sold into slavery that then Judah chooses to run away to. And if we think of our own lives, isn't it our, our wounds and our, our shame that often cause us to isolate ourselves from others? I mean, the shame and the guilt that we carry causes us to isolate ourselves from God, to think that we're not capable of being loved by God. And so we have to, to recluse ourselves and, and, and pull ourselves away from God and the people who are around us and isolate ourselves because of the things that we've done to harm other people, the things that we've done to harm ourselves, those moments we talked about that we wish we could erase or edit from our stories. Judah is running away from God because he is hurting and because he is carrying shame. And not only is Judah running from God because of his guilt and his shame and this woundedness, but it goes beyond that because not only does he marry a Canaanite woman and run away from God, his presence and his promise, but then he has his son also marry a Canaanite woman. And so what you see is Judah is entrenching himself far away from God, as far away from God as he can get in this moment. I mean, he is trying to set up a boundary and say, this is my new path, this is my new home, this is the route I'm going away from God's promise and away from God's presence. And so the question in the story is, what's going to happen to the promised line of Abraham? 
because three sons have already disqualified themselves, and it looks like the third, the fourth, is beginning to do the same thing. And then the story continues. And in verse 7, it says this, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord put him to death. No trigger warning there. Just he was bad, so God killed him. And then it goes on and says, Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as in the law to raise up offspring for your brother. Now, if I die, I I so hope that the first thing my dad says to my brothers is not go sleep with your brother's wife. Like, what in the world is going on here? So we have Judah running away from God. He has three sons. His oldest son is wicked, so God kills him, which doesn't give us any kind of context for why God does that or what he's done to deserve that. And the next thing we have is that Judah says to his next son, Onan, go sleep with Tamar, your brother's wife. What in the world is going on? Well, I'm glad you asked because what is happening in this story has something to do with ancient Mesopotamian law. Anyone familiar with ancient Mesopotamian law? Nope. Okay, I wasn't either, so don't feel guilty at all. But are you excited to get a little lesson in the lawyering and lawing of ancient Mesopotamia? Anyone excited with me for the next two minutes? Yeah? Okay, got one? All right. So this is what's happening in this story. And it's weird. For our Western eyes, it doesn't really make sense. But in this patriarchal culture where women really were dependent on men for their, their sustenance, for their safety, for their security... If a childless woman becomes a widow, then she is one of the most vulnerable people in that society. And as one of those vulnerable people, the society had to figure out, okay, how do we protect women who are childless widows, who have lost them because they have no prospect for someone wanting to marry them again. They have no children to take care of them in their old age. And so they have really no future and someone has to take care of them. So what do we do? And so their solution, as weird as it might sound to us, was to have, if the husband who died had a brother who was an eligible bachelor, then he could marry his brother's wife and have a child with her and continue the family line. There's a way to make sure that the brother's line continued, and there's also a way to make sure that the woman was protected. And so what Judah is saying to Onan is, hey, it's your responsibility now to take care of your brother's wife, to try to have a son with her, and to make sure that she's taken care of in her old age. It's our family's responsibility, which Onan is kind of willing to do. He's willing to marry her. He's willing to sleep with her, but he's not willing to conceive with her and to have a child. And so this is God's response to Onan's actions. In verse 10, it says, What Onan did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Now, we're about five or six verses into this story, and God has killed two people, and a brother has slept with his wife. These are the stories that, if I'm honest with you, when I read them, when I come to these stories and I see God killing people, it doesn't make sense to me. And these are the kind of stories that when I read them, I kind of just want to push them to the side and and pretend they didn't happen because I don't know what to do with them. Because how does it jive with the, the Jesus we see in the New Testament who's loving and compassionate and cares for people and come alongside them to redeem them? How is that the same God as the God in the Old Testament who kills people when they upset him? Like, what is God doing in this moment? I mean, it seems like, if I'm honest, like God is just volatile. That he's just looking for an excuse to kill people who are doing bad things and just take them out. 
How can God be loving and just when we see stories like this one? They never sit well with me, and I've said it before, but so many times it feels like to me that the God of the Old Testament and Jesus, they just don't make sense. It feels like the God of the Old Testament it becomes Jesus after he's gone to a really good therapist and kind of worked all of his issues out, right? And, and he's become a, a better God. So we have to examine what's going on in this story, because in this age when we're trying to understand who God is and how he could do these things, when we come to these stories, if we don't come up with answers, then, then these are the kind of texts that cause people to just walk away and say, I'm out. If this is what God is like, then you can have him. I don't want a God like this. I don't like a God like this. And again, we have to dive a little deeper into this story to understand the context of what's happening because it doesn't make sense to our Western eyes. And see, what you have to understand uh, about what Onan was doing is that, that in this, this society, what was happening is called liberate marriage. And so as Onan marries his brother's wife and, and tries to give her a son but refuses to, what is happening in this story? What, what's going on there? Well, I mentioned earlier that, that there's this right, this inheritance for firstborn in the stories. And, and in fact, in these cultures, the firstborn always received a double portion. They call it a double portion of the inheritance of their father. So, for the instance, in Judah's family, as Ur and Onan and Shelah, the three sons, when Judah died, then Ur would be able to receive 50% of the inheritance of his father, and then his other two brothers would each get 25%. With Ur out of the picture, then that means that Onan is now the oldest and the firstborn. But now the inheritance is only split between two people, not three. And so he goes from inheriting 25% of his father's wealth to 66% of his father's wealth. But if he has a son with Tamar, then that son and Tamar replace Ur in the family tree and they would be subject to that firstborn inheritance. And so Onan would go from that 66% and get his inheritance cut back to 25%. Now, I am terrible at math, but even I can see that that is not a good deal, which is why in that culture, if you did not want to go through with this liverite marriage, you could go before the town council and you could opt out. You could go before them and declare that you were absolving yourself of this responsibility. But Onan doesn't do that. Onan, to everyone else, says that I, publicly, he says that I will take this responsibility. I will continue my brother's line. I will care for Tamar. But in their home, he is ensuring that she will never have a child. And so you see, Onan is willing to use Tamar for his sexual gratification while he is stealing her social security checks. And God sees this, sees that it is wicked, and takes action. So we come to these stories of God in the Old Testament that make us uncomfortable, and, and if we're honest, there are times where we see God and we do not like the God that we see. And he can seem very vengeful and angry and unjust. But what you have to understand, in this moment, God is the only one who sees what is happening and the only one who is capable of protecting Tamar. See, what we see is that God takes the vulnerability of women very, 
very seriously. That it angers God when they are used for sexual gratification. See, what Onan did was use a person, take away her image of God that, that she was created with, and use her to gain wealth and his own pleasure. And God sees that and calls it wicked and puts an end to it and says, This cannot happen. If you can believe it, the story of Judah actually gets worse from here. Okay? So we're ready to keep pressing on? Gets a little worse. You see, what happens is when God has killed now Ur and Onan, Judah begins to freak out a little bit. He's like, my two sons have just been taken out. They've just been killed. And he superstitiously begins to think that maybe it's Tamar. Maybe she's doing something wrong. Maybe superstitiously there's something wrong with her. And so even though he has a third son named Shelah who would next be next in line to take Tamar and, and to marry her, Judah's kind of like, I don't know if that's such a good idea. So, uh, Tamar, why don't you just go back and live with your father and in his household and let him take care of you and figure out what's going on. And then maybe when Sheila's older, then you can marry my, my third son and we'll kind of work it out and we'll just figure out the details later. But what Genesis tells us is that he has no intention of honoring that promise. And so he essentially sends Tamar away, absolves himself of the responsibility to care for her, and, and forces her to be a widow who will be isolated and have no future, no one to take care of her. And some years pass, and nothing changes. And the only things that we're told about these years passing is that, that two things happen. One is that Judah's wife dies, and so he goes into a season of grief and bereavement. And even though the years have passed, and Sheila is now old enough to marry Tamar, Judah has still not allowed Tamar to marry his third son. And so Tamar begins to kind of formulate this own plan. In desperation, she tries to figure out a way to save herself and to redeem herself and to give herself a future. And so she learns that after Judah has been, become a widow and, and been through a season of grief, that he's going to a festival where he's going to celebrate with all of his friends. And she knows the way to the festival. And so she dresses herself up like a prostitute and waits for Judah as he's on his way along this road. Judah comes upon her, and he's filled with desire. He doesn't know or recognize her because she's veiled herself. He can't recognize who she is. And so he propositions her. He asks her if she's willing to sleep with him, but he has no money to pay her. And so they bargain, and they haggle, and he ends up giving her his, his cord and his signet ring and his staff. Basically, for, for our kind of common vernacular, it's his, his ID and his credit card account. And he says, you can take these, and then after we've done our stuff, and I go back and get some money, then I'll pay you later, and you can give those things back to me. Only when he sends a servant back to pay her, she's no longer there. And embarrassed and worried about becoming a laughingstock and people knowing what happens, he says, don't go around asking for her. Don't try to find her. Like, it's fine. She can just have those things. We'll pretend it never happened, and I won't pay her and won't worry about it. A few months after that event... Judah gets word that Tamar is pregnant. One of his friends comes to him and says, hey, remember Tamar, your daughter-in-law, who's been living as a widow waiting for Sheila, and technically she's engaged to Sheila. She has been living a promiscuous life of prostitution, and she got pregnant. And Judah loses it. I mean, he is infuriated. 
And he responds and he says, bring her out to me and burn her alive. I mean, aside from just the hypocrisy, right? I mean, of, of trying to condemn someone who's, who's guilty of the same thing that he is guilty of. It's also a, a very like good thought out scheme on Judah's part because what he's saying in this moment is, hey, here's my chance. I can get rid of Tamar once and for all. I don't have to deal with her anymore. We'll just burn her and be done with her. And I think it's an important moment in the story just to take stock of Judah's character and, and just remember some of the things he's done. So Judah's one of the brothers who wants to kill his brother, but is talked out of it, and then decides to sell his brother into slavery, lies to his father about it, sending his father into a deep grief and deep depression, and figuring out that that didn't actually solve his father wound. He decides to leave and flee God's presence, marries a Canaanite woman, raises two evil sons, sleeps with his daughter-in-law, thinking it's a prostitute, gets her pregnant, and then condemns her to be burned alive. I mean, not a great guy by any stretch of the imagination. And that's putting it very, very mildly. And we have to ask ourselves, how did Judah get to this place? I mean, how did he go from being the, the inherent de facto firstborn of his family, the heir to God's promise and his promised land, to this I mean, the choices that he has made are deplorable. And this is where the story picks up in verse 25. As she, being Tamar, is being brought out, as Tamar is being brought out to be burned alive, she sent a message to her father-in-law. She says, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And then she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are, which I think is an absolute baller move. <laughs> like, like this woman is about to be burned alive and says, hey, look in the mirror. These are your things. You've done this. You want to condemn me? Then you have to condemn yourself. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I since I would not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. You see, when Judah sees his belongings that Tamar has sent, it's as if someone holds up a mirror to his face and says, look at the kind of man you have become. Look at what you've done. Look at how far from God you have run. And what's remarkable in this moment is instead of denying or continuing to run, Judah instead repents. And, and he not only says that she is more righteous than I, the, the, the actual language in this text is that she is righteous, not I. Judah is recognizing how deeply he has sinned, how far from God he has run, all because of Tamar's courage. He sees that she is righteous, he is not, and so he repents. And the story finishes with this interesting last little tidbit about how from this, this uh, event in their lives, we'll just call it that in case there are any young people in the room, it, it, from this event... Tamar has two sons, twin boys, Perez and Zerah. And then it ends. 
And then it picks back up with Joseph being sold into slavery, going into Potiphar's house, and that's the end of the story. And I think before we go much further, there's, there's something that has to be done because I think there are too many times, if you're familiar at all with this story, the only thing that we have probably heard about this story is about how Tamar tricked, deceived, and seduced her father-in-law to sleeping with her and that that was wrong. And while to our, like, modern ears, that sounds like a terrible situation to happen, there are a lot of things going on in the text that are actually trying to absolve Tamar and say that she is the heroine of this story. She is the one who causes Judah to repent. And someone last night, they, I'm going into this because someone was trying to push it, and I didn't go into all the details last night, but I think it's so important for us to understand what Tamar does in this moment. You see, the first thing you've got to understand is it's very important to the story that Judah is a widow when Tamar does these actions. Because technically, when Judah has become a widow, when he is no longer married, then he is actually eligible to, to step in to the Liverite marriage and save Tamar. It is now his responsibility. He is someone who's able to do that. And so she's actually going according to the law. But, but the second thing that's fascinating is you would expect a person like Tamar in this story to be something that, that people would want to kind of sweep under the rug and pretend never happened. And yet Tamar is named throughout Scripture again and again and again in positions of honor. In fact, at Ruth and Boaz's wedding in the book of Ruth, she is named in a position of honor. David, King David, and his son Absalom name daughters. Tamar is a sign of respect for what she's done. Beyond that, she's given two sons, two sons for the two husbands that she's lost. It's as if God is blessing everything that has happened and replacing what she has lost. Similar to what God does with Job at the end of that story where he replaces the children that he's lost. God gives his stamp of approval. And beside that, I think the most important detail in Genesis that tells us Tamar is not wrong in this story is that other than Noah and Abraham, she is the only person in Genesis who is called righteous. The only person. See, the, the text is going out of its way to say that, that Tamar is the heroine of the story, that she has saved the family. But the question is, how? Like, what about this story has saved the family and God's promise? What, what has it done in the life of Judah? Well, you, you may remember from different parts of Scripture that Judah actually becomes an incredibly important person in the history of Israel. In fact, it's from Judah that we have the line of kings. Judah is one of King David's great, 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 great ancestors. So how do we get from this story to the place where Judah is the father of the kings of Israel. You may remember that Judah, I said at the beginning, is the firstborn. Again, because Reuben, he disqualified himself by sleeping with his father's wife, and Simeon and Levi by murdering an entire village of people. Judah has become the firstborn. And you look at this story and you think, how has Judah not disqualified himself also? Like, how did, how did we get from Judah not disqualifying himself to being the one that all of the kings come from? Where's the line of redemption in his story? Well, if you turn to Genesis 49... It's a, the second to last chapter in Genesis. The story of the book of Genesis is wrapping up. And Jacob, Judah's father, is on his deathbed. And as he is about to die, he, he begins to bless 
his sons. And what's fascinating is he starts with the oldest, Reuben, as you would expect, but he gives kind of a blessing, kind of a curse. He's like, Reuben, you were incredibly strong. You were my firstborn. I kind of like, I'm not going to do it, but I, I kind of have like the godfather voice in my head when, when Jesus is doing these blessings. And he's just like, you were my firstborn. You were so strong. But you also slept with my wife, so curse on your head. And then he goes to Simeon and Levi, and he says, you guys were incredible warriors. Oh, you were such great warriors. But man, you had an anger problem. Like, like just curse upon how cruel and violent you were. Blessing and curse. But listen to what Jacob says about Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a, a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. I mean, there's no curse, only blessing. How has Judah, given everything that he has done, not disqualified himself? The answer is the incident with Tamar. It changes him. When he repents in this moment, he becomes unrecognizable. The next time we actually see Judah is when Joseph is second in command of the entire known world, when he is next only to Pharaoh in power. And Judah and his brothers go down to Egypt because there's a famine in their land and they're desperate for food. And so they go to Egypt to try to buy food. And they, unbeknownst to them, come upon their brother who has risen into power. And when they meet him, Joseph gives them food. He showers blessings and gifts upon them and he sends them away. But he says, if you come back, you cannot return to me unless you bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, Joseph's full blood brother. You cannot bring, come back unless you bring Benjamin with you. And they think, there's no way we can bring Benjamin with us. He's become the one that our father loves. And if, if our father, Jacob, loses both Joseph and Benjamin, then he, it will put him in the grave. He will die. But they become desperate. And then when they're home, they begin to run out of food again. And so they go back to Egypt, bringing Benjamin with them. And Joseph kind of sets up this situation to, to kind of replicate the situation that had with him. And, and he places some of his possessions on Benjamin's. And so when Joseph goes to find out who's stolen from him, he finds Benjamin to have, have stolen his possessions. And so he brings the brothers back and he says, how dare you do this to me? How dare you disrespect me? Your brother has stolen from me. You must leave him here and he will be my slave, but the rest of you can go free. One of the brothers steps forward and says, eh, we can't. We cannot leave our brother here. Take me instead. I will sell myself into slavery to protect Benjamin. Let him go free. And that brother is Judah. The brother who sold his brother into slavery is now willing to sell himself into slavery to save his brother, to stand in the gap. And in this moment, it just, it breaks Joseph. 
I mean, it says that he just begins to weep uncontrollably. He sends all of his attendants away. He reveals to his brother who is, this is the moment that begins the reconciliation process for all of the dysfunction of Jacob's family and his sons. Judah, because of Tamar's courage, Judah repents and changes and is the catalyst for redemption in the story. You see, when we come to these stories, these messy, dysfunctional, grimy, nasty stories, what we see is that this story actually in many ways perfectly summarizes the entire point of Genesis. That in the midst of our stories, in the midst of the chaos of our stories, God is at work writing his story of redemption. That in the midst of the dysfunction and the evil, God is transcendently above those things, but intimately involved in them, working out his plan of salvation. Because that is the kind of author God is. God is an author who does not edit or erase or delete part of our stories, but redeems the worst moments of our lives. That in in the midst of our failures, God can have his greatest victories. You see, what Judah learned in this story is that you can run from God, but you cannot outrun God's mercy and grace. That all of the moments and stories of our lives that we wish we could go back and do over and edit and delete and erase are actually the very moments that God can utilize for our redemption and our salvation. So you can imagine that that Judah and Tamar would wish that this story would be erased from history. I mean, could you imagine sleeping with your daughter-in-law and having that story be read for generations and for thousands of years? And yet the very things that we wish we could edit or erase are the very things that God chooses to highlight. Because thousands of years after this story, when Matthew writes his story of Jesus, He says in Matthew chapter 1, this is how he chooses to begin his book. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the King, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. See, the, the very stories in the Bible that that we think should not be there are the stories God chooses to highlight because they bring us our salvation in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They are the source of grace and mercy for all of us. You see, Judah found out that God's grace was sufficient for him. And and I don't know about any of you, but, but when I look at my story, there are plenty of things I wish that I could do over. Thankfully, none of them have involved selling my brothers into slavery or or trying to burn my, like, daughter-in-law. I don't have a daughter-in-law, but burn someone alive, anyone alive. Like, right? Like, Like, they're horrible moments. And yet God's grace is sufficient for even the darkest moments in these stories. And so God's grace is sufficient for you and for me. 
I I never do this, but if there's anyone here today that thinks that they have been running from God and has not stepped into the story of God's grace, into the story of God's redemption, I would encourage you to do so. Because it is when we join our stories to God's story of redemption that all of the moments we wish we could erase and do over and edit and delete can be redeemed and repurposed that our brokenness, our wounds, and our shame are healed. See, this story of Judah and Tamar is our story. It's the story of our family, of our faith. Because just like Judah, we have Jesus, our brother who Scripture says was willing to give himself up on our behalf. Is God's grace. And as we wrap up this story in Genesis and as we come to a close on this story, there's a a poem that I've been sitting with uh, for the last few weeks as I've reflected on the story. It's a a poem that was written by someone named Michael Stalkup, who's a great friend of mine, um, and he is actually one of our global partners. And this poem, I think, just perfectly encapsulates some of what's going on in the story of how God works out redemption and grace in their lives. And so as we contemplate that truth, as we sit in this story, I would like to invite Michael up to share this poem with us called Our Family Tree. You came to us descended from Tamar, from Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, names and scars on proud display upon your family tree, showing the kind of savior you would be. Emmanuel, you stood with the exploited, the outcasts, immigrants, abused, avoided by those who claimed your genealogy, forgetting who you raised us all to be those blessed to be a blessing to the nations, inviting folks from every generation to come just as they are and be restored, finding their true identity in yours, that grafted in by grace, not cast aside, we'd share your spirit's fruit as we abide.